Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we are wrapping up Wolf's rather intense novella, The Death of Dr. Island. The story is full of rich world building. It's got questions about human nature and human psychology. And of course, there's an awful lot of religion going on here. So we are going to have a lot to talk about this episode. But before we get into it, we are really excited about an episode that we just released for our Patreon supporters. That's right. We covered a story called The Visitors by the Strugatsky brothers, more famous in America, for the novel Roadside Picnic and the Russian film Stalker. But this story is fascinating and has a lot of elements from Roadside Picnic and Stalker in it. I loved this story. I can't wait for people to listen to it and tell us what they thought. But let's get into this discussion. As you said, Glenn, we've got a lot to cover. I'm very excited about this. I loved this novella. Of course, I, I love all of Wolf's novellas. Novellas might really be where Wolf is at his best. That might be a contentious statement to make here in this episode, but I just haven't read a novella that I haven't been really excited by and excited about and just eager to break apart with you. So yeah, let's get into it. I think the best thing to do in starting is to kind of start small and to investigate the mystery of the death of Maya, uh, which we talked a lot about in our recap. So what I want to do is read through each of these uh, bits of the story that mention Maya and, and see if we can piece together some of the baggage that Nicholas is carrying around and maybe determine if he has committed a crime. I should point out that in our reading of this story, the story that Nicholas tells about the girl at St. John's early on to Diane is about Maya. So that's where we'll begin uh, reading these passages. Nicholas says this, at St. John's where I used to be, it was zero G most of the time. And a girl there called me something I didn't like, and I got loose one night and came into her cubicle while she was asleep and nulled her restraints, and then she floated around until she banged into something, and that woke her up, and she tried to grab, and then that made her bounce all around inside, and she broke two fingers and her nose and got blood all over. The attendants came, and one told me they didn't know then that I did it. When he came out, his white suit was like polka dot red all over because wherever the blood drops had touched him they soaked right in that passage was on page 87 of the island of dr death and other stories and other stories this one's on page 90 there was this girl where i was her name was maya they had you know boys and girls dorms but you saw everybody in the rec room in the dining hall and so on and she was in my psychodrama group her hair had been black and chinese the lacquered furniture in dr hung's rooms her skin white like the mother of pearl, her eyes long and narrow, making him think of cat's eyes, and darkly blue. She was 15 or so, Nicholas believed, maybe 16. I'm going home, she told him. It was psychodrama, and he was her brother, younger than she, and she was already at home. But when she said this, the floating ring of light that gave them the necessary separation from the small doctor and patient audience ceased by instant agreement to be Maya's mother's living room, and became a visiting lounge. Nicholas Jerry said, Hey, that's great. Hey, I got a new bike. When you come home, you want to ride it? Maureen, Maya's mother said, Maya, don't. You'll run into something and break your teeth. And you know how much they cost. You don't want me to have any fun. We do, dear, but nice fun. A girl has to be so much more careful. Oh, Maya, I wish I could make you understand, really, how careful a girl has to be. Nobody said anything, so Nicholas Jerry filled in with, It has a three-bladed prop, and I'm going to tape streamers to them with little weights at the ends. 
And when I go down old 37B passageway, look out. Here comes that old coleslaw grater. Like this, Maya said, and held her legs together and extended her arms to make a three-bladed bike prop or a crucifix. She'd thrown herself into a spin as she made the movement and revolved slowly, stage center, red shorts, white blouse, red shorts, white blouse, red shorts, no shoes. Diane asked, and you saw that she was never going home? She was going to hospital instead? She was going to cut her wrist there? She was going to die? Nicholas nodded. Did you tell her? Yes, Nicholas said. No. Make up your mind. Didn't you tell her? Now, don't get mad. Is it telling when the one you tell doesn't understand? Diane thought about that for a few steps while Nicholas dashed water on the hot bruises Ignacio had left upon his face. If it was plain and clear and she ought to have understood, that's the trouble I have with my family. And then this conversation goes on for a little bit. The next passage is on page 100. They sat in silence, Nicholas listening to the dripping of the leaves. He remembered then that they had spun in the hospital module, finally, to get the little spheres of clotting blood out of the air. Maya's blood was building up on the grills of the purification intake ducts, spotting them black, and someone had been afraid they would decay there and smell. He had not been there when they did it, but he could imagine the droplets settling like this in the slow spin. The old psychodrama group had already been broken up, and when he saw Maureen or any of the others in the rec room, they talked about good old days. It had not seemed like good old days then, except that Maya had been there. This next passage is on page uh, 112 and 113. It's right after Nicholas has killed the monkey. How did he make him talk? He dropped the monkey, stared at it for a moment, then kicked it. His fingers were bloody, and he wiped them on the leaves of a tree. Only my mind speaks to yours, Nicholas. Oh, he said. And then, I've heard of that. I didn't think it would be like this. I thought it would be in my head. Your record shows no auditory hallucinations. But haven't you ever known someone who had them? I knew a girl once, he paused. Yes. She twisted noises, you know? Yes. Like it would just be a service car out in the corridor. But she'd hear the fan and think... What? Oh, different things. That it was somebody talking, calling her. Hear them? What? He sat up in his bunk. Maya? They're coming after me. Maya? The next passage is on page 117 as Nicholas is looking for food. He imagined himself standing before a large and raggedly faceted stone, holding the coconut in both hands. He raised it and smashed it down. But when it struck, it was no longer a coconut but Maya's head. He heard her nose cartilage break with a distinct rubbery snap. Her eyes, as blue as the sky above Madhya Pradesh, the sparkling blue sky of the egg, looked up at him, but he could no longer look into them. They retreated from his own, and it came to him quite suddenly that Lucifer, in falling, must have fallen up into the fires of the coldness of space, never again to see the warm blues and browns and greens of earth. And finally, on page 128, right towards the end of the story, Nicholas is causing this crazy storm on the island. He went into the jungle where the trees lashed themselves to leafy rubbish in the wind and broken branches flew through the air like debris from an explosion. For a while, he heard Diane's voice crying in the wind. It became Maya's, 
than his mother's or sister Carmela's, and a hundred others. In time, the wind grew less, and he could no longer feel the ground rocking. He felt tired, he said. I didn't kill you after all, did I? But there was no answer. On the beach, when he returned to it, he found the welder half-buried in the sand. No trace of Diane's ashes, nor his fire. He gathered more wood and built another, lighting it with the welder. So those are all the passages, or maybe nearly all of them, that uh, include mentions of Maya. So Glenn, just looking at it in this compact way, what's your take on what happened here? I guess that's the, the first question I want to ask. When we were recapping this, we had some questions about even the, the veracity of the, the first of these passages that you read, where Nicholas is bragging about how he does violence to people as a way of kind of warning Diane not to call him Nicky, which is a name that he hates being called because that's what his mother calls him. And in some ways, right, if we have that hesitation about the truthfulness of anything that Nicholas is saying, we might wonder about some of these other passages as well. But I think that we both agree that Maya has actually died, that she was a real person who died. The question then is, what was the role in Nicholas in her death? What level of culpability does he bear for that? It is clear, I guess, from this last passage that at some point, at least, he has thought that he was responsible in some way for her death. And so I guess the question of whether or not this was something that happened as a, an accident or whether this is something that happened intentionally through his will, uh, his his mentally unwell will, I think we would say, but his will nonetheless, how we answer that question, I think, hinges on what we do with the scene with the coconut. And it's a question of, is this a memory or is this just a dream of some sort, a daydream, a, a fantasy, something he's imagining, uh, something that is born out of the, the guilt that he feels for her death, even though the death didn't take place the way that he is envisioning it as he is envisioning smashing her face in. Right. I agree with you. I, I think after encountering the passages in this way, one thing we have to point out is that Diane is the one who talks about Maya slitting her wrists or committing suicide. Nicholas does not affirm that answer. He doesn't say that that's what happened. There are two possibilities that we can look at with Diane saying this. One is she has some sort of preternatural or supernatural uh, mental abilities, the same way Nicholas claims to, or she's just telling stories that happen commonly, maybe in the places where she has come from. With regard to the scene of the coconut, my, my take on it is that Nicholas went in and released the straps for Maya after she called him a name, and she actually died. It wasn't just that she broke her nose and some fingers, but whatever happened there resulted in her death, and that is what he sees with the, with the coconut. It's not that he smashed her head, but that in that zero-G environment, he knows what happened to her and what caused her death might have been trauma, some sort of head trauma. Uh, and he feels guilty about that. And that's my take on the whole situation. And at the end of this story, where he says, I didn't kill you. I didn't kill you after all. He could be referring to many people. He could be referring to Diane. He could be referring to Maya, or maybe he's caused harm to more people that he thinks he's killed through his violent tendencies. Well, I think that's the crux of the question is, is how do we make sense of this, this final statement that I didn't kill you after all? I think your reading makes sense of all of the evidence. 
but I, my personal feeling about taking that action is that that is killing somebody, right? It's through negligence, but it wasn't the type of negligence that's a, a total accident. He went there to do that so that she would be harmed. He went there to harm her. The fact that he didn't mean for the harm to be death, but meant for the harm only to be a broken nose and a few messed up fingers uh, is a question of degree, not a not a question of kind or a question of intent. So I have trouble sort of reading this last line with that because I still think that you would have to feel culpable at that point because your actions did directly lead to it. And it was a choice that you made. It wasn't that like, you know, the choice you made was to not pick up your toys and someone slipped on them. It was the choice that you made was to do violence to someone and it went further than you meant. Totally different scenarios. So yeah, I have trouble squaring this. And this is still one of these things that I, even though it's at the core of what we think happens in this story and the core of how we're going to read it, I'm still having trouble to have taken a firm stance on this. Well, I think, you know, the next batch of questions that we go through, and maybe this whole discussion is going to be examining whether Nicholas should be let off the hook, whether he can let himself off the hook, whether that's a good thing. What is the good in this story? What in this story is pointing to the good at all? And that's basically the direction we're going to be taking this whole story in. Yeah, I think this is going to be one of these classic moments in Wolf stories where we actually need to understand what the questions are, what the themes and motifs are in order for us to actually make sense of the plot, right? To see, to we can ask ourselves, well, does this answer to one of the puzzles reinforce or undermine the theme? And that perhaps will help us answer this question. Yeah. And there are more questions to come. So don't worry. <laughs> um, let's move into the the topic of the theological in this story. As I mentioned in the recap, I think it might be worthwhile considering this story as a theodicy, as an interrogation of the problem of pain or why God allows suffering or evil. I want to start this by reading an excerpt from the MIT Technology Review interview that Gene Wolfe did uh, several years ago that touches on this and look at how the death of Dr. Island might be engaging with Wolfe's viewpoint or Wolfe is challenging his own viewpoint here. The interviewer says, you once said that pain tends to prove God's reality rather than the opposite, that pain was not a theological difficulty for you. Gene Wolfe said this, no, it isn't. If you catch a dragonfly and bend the end of its body up, it will eat itself until it dies. When people have had their mouths numbed for dentistry, they must be warned not to chew their tongues. I think if we assume that pain is simply an evil, we're oversimplifying things. The interviewer says, You're saying that pain might be a necessary design feature, that the divine engineer, Wolf breaks in, yes, absolutely, the interviewer continues, put into his animated machines. And then Wolf says this, if you had living things without pain, they would have a very rough time surviving. I think this statement applies to Wolf's conception of robots, of almost everything he writes. Uh, but now I'm going to connect this to the story. Nicholas is very troubled by the fact that Dr. Island, who was supposed to be everywhere and see everything and know everything, is unable to stop Ignacio from beating him badly. Although Dr. Island has all of these capabilities, kind of the, the classic uh, characteristics of a god, he has no hands, he says, and can stop nothing from occurring because the people that are present on the island are in charge of the events that take place on the island at the end of the day. But of course, Dr. Island reveals throughout the story that he doesn't see everything that is happening, as in when he's checking on another part of the island. And Nicholas tells him point blank that he can't see everything. And that means that Dr. Island also can't be everywhere. And he can't know everything because he mistakes these 
butterflies for flowers. And so Nicholas is slowly becoming aware that there are some real issues with Dr. Island's programming. And worst of all, by the end of the story, when Nicholas is raging against Dr. Island, trying to destroy it, it turns out that these insectoid robot creatures that come from the sea come to stop Nicholas, revealing that, hey, Dr. Island does have hands. He just mostly doesn't use them (laughs) unless he's being attacked or something or needs to maintain the cables that connect the server to the island or something like that. So first, Glenn, what do you think that Wolf is doing with this picture of Dr. Island as containing or having the attributes of God and Nicholas slowly seeing that these attributes are not total, that Dr. Island is a sort of counterfeit God? I think the key word here is counterfeit, right? We are presented Dr. Island at the beginning of the story as this all-seeing, all-knowing being, though not all-powerful, right? You've laid this out already. But yeah, as the story progresses, we come to realize that the all-seeing and all-knowing is also not true. But he still kind of pretends that this is true. And in fact, when Nicholas catches him in lies or you know fifth something we might call fibs dr island spins that in a way that still makes him appear to be supreme appear as if this is all part of some sort of design that he has but i don't think that that's the the case right this is an artificial construct this is an ai program built by humans to operate as a mental hospital it is not actually god But Wolf sets up the story in such a way that this actually very much feels like it is the Garden of Eden and that this is God who is very present there. So my sense of it is, is that we are supposed to understand that Dr. Island is pretending to be God, but is not actually God, but also that Dr. Island is the villain of this story, that this is an evil here and that part of the evil is actually pretending to be God, uh, which seems to be something that Dr. Island is doing in a way that contradicts his programming of helping all of these people that he has decided that he gets to make the rules, not the people who've programmed him is my sense of what's going on here. We'll talk more about that, I think, towards the end of this series of questions. And I think some of this is reinforced by the the Lucifer imagery that Nicholas calls to mind or thinks of when he has this whole image of, of Lucifer as falling up rather than down, as Lucifer being someone who's exiled from God's creation, not drawn closer to it. I think all of that works to indicate here that we are not dealing with the Garden of Eden. We're not dealing with heaven. We are actually dealing with some kind of small hell in which there's a robot, an AI, who thinks that he is God, but is in fact really behaving as some kind of devil. Right. And we see this Eden imagery and symbolism throughout the story. There's the snakes in the trees, but the trees lack fruit. And this corruption of the symbol can really point to a corruption of the thing itself. And so this story is just rife with the naked figures, the Adam and Eve of Nicholas and Diane or Ignacio and Diane. There's there's a lot of Christian symbolism in this story. And Glenn, I think you really hit the nail on the head here that the the way the symbolism functions in this story is to point out that Dr. Island is evil. And before we get to the end of the discussion, we will have an explicit uh, quote from Gene Wolfe that talks about what he was thinking about when he was writing this story. But I want to come back to this and the, and the problem of pain. 
how do you think Nicholas is supposed to get better? Or how is he supposed to process this problem of, of pain, of suffering on this island, given the betrayal and the suspect imperfect planning of the god figure, Dr. Island? We're supposed to take from the ending of this story that Nicholas has been healed in some way, or at least has taken a big step on his journey towards healing when the Kenneth personality that's trapped inside of him becomes the dominant personality. And Nicholas, who's this violent person who does all of these horrible things to people, uh, sets fires on the spaceship that that brought him here, uh, has something to do with Maya's death, even if we're not quite totally sure what that was, is seen as a danger and a, a threat to others. That personality is buried and no longer has control over the body. We're supposed to be optimistic about that. We're supposed to take that as a sign that Nicholas or this person has begun some sort of healing. And I guess we're meant to understand that the the thing that does this, the the mechanism that brings this about is coming to care about Diane, seeing Diane as a sort of stand-in for Maya, trying to save Diane or protect Diane in a way that he didn't with Maya. It's a do-over for him, right? And then he fails at that. And that does not seem like good therapy to me, right? Number one, to actually let a person die in order to help someone else, whether it's Nicholas or Ignacio or frankly, both or a thousand people or a million people. I don't think that's good therapeutic practice or any kind of medical practice. I don't think that Wolf is endorsing that. So I'm skeptical about that connection and what we're supposed to make of it. But the other thing is that Nicholas is not ready to go here, or even Nicholas, who becomes Kenneth at the end, he's not being allowed to leave. Ignacio is being sent on his way. And we are left with the understanding that the next stage in Nicholas slash Kenneth's treatment is for him to be a sort of caretaker for other patients who come in. That part of his rehabilitation, his ability to go back into society and function, which is one of the key words here in this story, is about his ability to be in a community with other people, and in fact, to be a leader in that community, to be a sort of caregiver to people. Yeah, and we're going to dig a lot deeper into into a lot of the things you just mentioned. But for me, it's also really, really problematic to think about how Nicholas is supposed to heal, to process the events that happened to him on this island and the coming events that will happen to him, um, given that he's not allowed to talk anymore about the, the counterfeit god that runs the island. In just a moment, we're going to dig into each of the three characters we're introduced to on the island and try to come up with an answer of who they are, who they represent to the world, to society, as Dr. Island is a stand-in for society and that he's making people that are fit to be heroic in society in some fashion. But I just want to ask one more question. What, you know, in, in your mind, Glenn, what do you think Wolf wants us to take away if we're encountering the story as a type of theodicy? Well, I think this is where we can circle back to your question about the problem of pain, because I do think that in some sense, this is meant to be an optimistic story, because it is clear that Ignacio is not a well person, and neither is Nicholas, but they are both going to be healed here through the death sacrifice, I guess, of Diane. But these are people who seem pretty far gone. I mean, extremely far gone, right? Uh, Ignacio is a killer. He is a violent, violent person. The thing that he wants to do most is kill a woman. And he does it here on this island. Nicholas also has done some violence to people, as we've, we've already recounted. 
these are people who would be easy to write off. These are people who in other societies would have been executed for their their crimes, for their inability to be with other humans. But Wolf here is envisioning that redemption is for everyone, right? Of course, this is something that Mark Aramini pointed out to us all the way back when we were covering Operation Ares, that Wolf believes redemption is for everyone, which is to say that Wolf believed that everyone can be redeemed. And this is a story about some pretty horrible young people being redeemed here, overcoming their pain, right? And so in this sense, perhaps the problem of pain is being represented here as a type of spiritual obstacle to be overcome in some way, right? This is the sort of thing that that we get on the kind of mystical journey, right? This is the the long night or the or sorry, the, the dark night of the the soul, right? The sort of thing that St. John of the, the Cross talked about. And as you pointed out, pretty conspicuously, St. John uh, it might not be St. John of the Cross, but it also might be is the name of the hospital that Nicholas is in. And we have Carmela here, right? The, the Carmelites. So that seems to be something that Wolf is wanting us to think about is that these are people who are coming through that night. They are overcoming their spiritual pain. I really want to buy into that reading of the story, but mine is not so optimistic. But we'll continue on revealing, I think, our, our readings and why we have them as as we go through uh, a few more of these questions. There are a few more Christian symbols still in the story that we should sift through here. I'll ask you one first. These can probably be a little more rapid fire. What do you think is going on with the Easter egg? Today, as we record, it is Easter. Uh, I wasn't going to ask this question, but I thought I had to because it's Easter. What's your reading of the role of the Easter egg that was a gift from his mother that has the little panorama inside? And why does Nicholas compare that Easter egg to Dr. Island? Yeah, I think this question maybe is in two parts. In what way is Dr. Island like this specific Easter egg in Nicholas's story? And then maybe in what way is Dr. Island like an Easter egg, the sort of uh, platonic form of, of an Easter egg. I think the first question is easier to answer, right? Because the Easter egg that Nicholas's mother gives him has a little window inside. This is a cool optical thing that you can do with eggs. They don't have to be anything to do with Easter. This is just a cool thing you can do with eggs where you can paint or decorate in some way the inside of them and, and see a really whole world in there that is uh, looks larger to your eye than it actually is. These are very cool. The image that we see there is of an equatorial land uh, surrounded by ocean. It's India in this case. Well, that's that's what Dr. Island is, uh, an equatorial climate uh, surrounded by ocean. And so looking through the egg and seeing that environment and then thinking of Dr. Island as being that same type of environment who is encased in this, uh, not glass, but whatever sort of future technological label wolf gave it in the story here uh this this case right so i think that reading is clear how it is like an easter egg in a, a sort of abstraction i'm less clear because i don't really know anything about easter eggs i'm old it's been a long time since i've gone after easter eggs you've just come from an actual easter celebration with some kids though so brandon you might actually have some better insight here i don't have any answer that connects dr island to an easter egg hunt per se uh but i i really think your reading helps clarify what Dr. Island is like, you have the the window that creates the bright spot where Jupiter's light comes in, which I think is, I think we're supposed to think of Dr. Island like this panoramic Easter egg that people could peek in potentially through that and see all of the number of things that are happening on the island. 
I do think another big part of the comparison between Dr. Island and this sort of Easter egg is the artificiality. It's man-made. Maybe it represents something bigger. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's just a fun toy. But I think the artificiality is also a key connection that Nicholas is making, that Nicholas is realizing this is a fake place made by fallible people, even though it might be trying to represent some sort of ideal landscape or scenery. If we want to abstract out from this, though, from Easter egg to Easter and thinking about what Easter symbolizes and how we might get some of that in this story, we're thinking of Easter as the resurrection of Christ, the leaving behind of, of his body. And to see that as a, as a kind of shedding of the, the world, right, by Christ in some way, that although I was using the word redemption here, using redeem to talk about the process of healing these people inside of Dr. Island. I mean, we could think of that in some ways as a resurrection. If they're, you know, they're being shoved into this cave maybe of Dr. Island and they are there and I think Nicholas is actually there for three days. Right. Uh, and then has some kind of epiphany, some kind of recovery here that happens. So there might be some symbolism there. Of course, we've seen Wolf use the sort of three days and something improves symbol repeatedly in his short stories. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point. And and while we're already talking about Jesus here, I'm going to ask you the classic wolf question, maybe early in our discussion. Uh, is Ignacio Jesus? And this is why I asked the question. Ignacio is explicitly compared to Jesus in the story in Nicholas's mind. And it, it, it does seem as though this slice of, of paradise is made for Ignacio by the island. But it's society in the abstract sense that has a plan for Ignacio. So is Ignacio Jesus? Yeah, Wolf's really stolen my thunder here in his story. I love to ask these types of questions, but here it is on the page, and we were being invited in the most explicit way possible to think about that. Before we got that description, though, I was thinking that Ignacio has to be St. Ignatius, right? He has to be... St. Ignatius Loyola, the founder of the, the Jesuits, because we also have you know St. Nicholas here, or, or Nicholas, who is also a saint, that there are saints all over the story. But I don't actually think that's what's going on with the name Ignacio. And the, the name Ignacio or, or Ignatius or Ignatius has a sort of bizarre etymology. It looks a little bit like it actually has something to do with the Latin word for, for birth, but it actually is more likely to be related to the Latin word for fire. But in either case, this is a medieval Latin name. It's not a classical Latin name, which is to say that it's kind of a screw up. It's it's a, a word that someone invented, but didn't realize maybe they were inventing some monk invented it at some point. But if we are going to take that it has something to do with fire, and I think we have good reason in the story to see this person, Ignacio, having a relationship with fire, uh, then I think that that's the significance of the name and not anything to do with Jesuits. Right. I agree. And I think we can talk about some of the mythical illusions now, apart from the Christian ones that tie Ignacio to Prometheus instead of Jesus. And Prometheus, of course, stole fire from the gods and he gave it to humanity. And, uh, you know, he's a core symbolic figure of the romantic movement, uh, which inspired a new sort of roguish individualism, the idea that the self can defy the gods and live freely. And it's not just the Promethean man that inspired the romantics. They kind of had to change their tune a little bit, um, because at first it was, it was Lucifer who was their hero. Uh, this was because of Blake's 
reading of of Milton's Paradise Lost and saw Satan or Lucifer as the hero of that story. So I think it forces us to ask the question of what kind of hero is Ignacio. And one thing to keep in mind here, I did while I was researching this, I, I came across some comments made by Joseph Campbell about the connection between Prometheus and Jesus in his mind, in terms of the the hero myth, the hero with a thousand faces, and how both gave themselves up for the spiritual betterment of the world and were punished for it on some result. I didn't have time to dig in and really dismantle that. So I'm going to stick with the romantic line of questioning here and not the Campbell line, but I think we can ask ourselves, and maybe this is a good forum question, if Wolf is quibbling with Campbell on this point as well. That's an interesting question. I'm I'm aware that Joseph Campbell sees this connection. Maybe we should talk a little bit about Prometheus so that we can we can make that connection. Prometheus is a god in the the ancient Greek religion, the ancient Greek mythology. He disobeys the like one explicit rule that everyone has to abide by that is given by Zeus, which is we don't let humans have the secret of fire because if they get that, then they can build civilization. Prometheus decides to disobey that rule and to show humans how to make fire. And of course, fire is super important to civilization, as is something I've just been talking about uh, in my uh, Western Civ class this week. And Prometheus is punished for disobeying Zeus, for giving this gift to humanity. That punishment is to be eternally tormented. He is chained to a rock, and every morning, a giant bird it's uh, sometimes it's the the eagle the giant eagle of zeus sometimes it's a it's a vulture depending on the the poet depending on the artist but every morning that bird will come and land on the rock where prometheus is chained up and will eat his insides eat his guts eat him alive and the being chained to the rock in this excruciating pain and the connection to having given something having in some ways maybe brought salvation to humanity. This is where Joseph Campbell sees the connection between Prometheus and 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 Christ, right? The, the sort of redeemer who is tortured. And where this gets connected with Lucifer is a really kind of misreading of the name Lucifer, which is Latin for bringer of light. This refers to, to Venus, which is the, the morning star. This is not a, a new, this is in fact an extremely old, this is a, co- a connection, a label for Venus uh, that goes back to some of the earliest writing that we have, goes all the way back to the, as far as history goes. And in fact, the name Lucifer gets applied to Satan in the Middle Ages, really, as a kind of misreading of some some parts of the, the Old Testament, some of the prophetic books of the Old Testament. But the turning Lucifer into a hero is something that happens when uh, people are thinking about names, thinking about etymology as a way of understanding who mythological figures are and what sorts of things they would have represented. I mean, this is the sort of thing that Tolkien did as well, right? Spinning whole worlds out of a single word, out of the etymology of a single word. And the idea that, well, Satan is also called Lucifer because he's the bringer of light was this way of thinking that, well, what Lucifer had actually done was to disobey God's commandment to bring fire to 
humans. Uh, and if we're equating him with Satan, with this, or really we should say with the serpent in the Garden of Eden, then what the serpent is doing there is trying to give humanity the knowledge that God has to make humans equal to God in that way. And so that's where they see the connection between Lucifer and Prometheus. There's some bit of the name going on there and then seeing them both actually as these misunderstood tragic heroes who are being punished for wanting to uh, level the playing field for wanting to give the secrets of of the universe to humans secrets that god or zeus wants to keep locked up in order to keep humanity down right that's fantastic and we are drawing the line explicitly in the story between ignacio lucifer jesus and prometheus it it is an extraordinarily complex image and i think wolf is doing that on purpose to get us to ask what type of hero would society choose for itself given the opportunity and it's something we really should continue to consider as we think about what wolf is trying to say with this story yeah, and I think, and I think we can bring this back to the question of is Ignacio Jesus, which I I never actually definitively answered. I was sort of trying to get away with with not having to lay my cards out on the table here, though I don't know why that's what the show is for. I do not think that Ignacio here is meant to symbolize Jesus. If anything, he's a kind of anti-Jesus, a kind of opposite Jesus. I mean, Ignacio in this story murders somebody in cold blood with this fire, with this uh, this science fiction blowtorch that that he has. There's nothing Christ-like about that. But all of these other indications are making us think about Christ. But if we're thinking about Dr. Island as being like God except evil, then perhaps Ignacio is meant to be a kind of Christ-Prometheus figure except evil, except bad, except not good. Right. I read him as an antichrist. Whatever Dr. Island is releasing back out into the galaxy is not going to be good for humanity. Maybe this is another Wolf story about the Antichrist, uh, which he's written more than one, I think. Yes, right. That we have not actually covered the one that you're thinking of yet, that we did a practice episode on it long ago. <laughs> right. Uh, hopefully we will get to cover that because that will be a great story to do. That would be a lot of fun. There's also, I think, Diane to consider as well. I don't think we did uh, a lot of work on her in the recap episodes. We briefly in the recap talked about connecting Diane to Artemis, the sister of Apollo, and that's the goddess of the sky in some sense, or at least imagery connected with the sky. So do you see, how do you see the Diane imagery or symbolism working in this story? Uh, in my mind, I can think of the sunspot, which has the power to move her from her catatonic state, maybe a relationship to Apollo there, or as a, as a memory of a bird who can't be in the sky, a grounded bird. So there's some, some difficulty there in, in her fulfilling who she really is. I just want to get your take on that before we go a little deeper into maybe what Mark Garamini suggests about Diane, which I think is really brilliant. Something we did not bring up in the, the recap is that Diana, uh, who is the, the the Latin name for, for Artemis, Diana is the virgin goddess. And in fact, Diana or Diane is frequently used in medieval poetry, medieval literature, medieval Christian literature, I should say, as a, a stand-in for the Virgin Mary or other types of virgins, but often it's specifically and explicitly the Virgin Mary uh, using Diana as a way to fit into the meter of your, your poem and, and to you know show some erudition as well. 
So perhaps we might want to consider her as a Virgin Mary figure. I'm, I'm not doing this as a question, Brandon, because you already stole my thunder on that this time. But I think if we are leaning towards seeing this all as an inversion, as an anti-God, an anti-Christ, then I don't think we need to see Diana as the anti-Virgin Mary. But I think that we can see the relationship between Diana and Ignacio as emphasizing the sort of anti-Christness of Ignacio. And we can think about the Virgin Mary in the Christ story, right? Uh, Christ honors his mother. She's an important part of, of his life. But then, of course, we can think of the, the famous image of the Pieta, where Christ is being held in his mother's arms, right? This is one of the most beautiful images in Christianity. This is right the Pieta. It's also, you know, the, the Passio, the passion here, right? This sympathy, this this empathy, the real human experience that Christ went through is wrapped up in that image in some way. But here, there is a virgin character in this story, and the the person who is suggested to be a Christ figure murders her. And I think we can also think about some of the, the Freudian things that Wolf is doing here. We know Wolf is really interested in Freud, and it is here. Freud is explicitly mentioned in this text. And so we could really see this perhaps as something Oedipal here, as the, the Oedipus complex, right? Because we are told, although because although what we see has happened to Diane's body is that she's been murdered with this science fiction blowtorch, I think we're also meant to understand that she's been sexually assaulted, or at least that he's had sex with her. Certainly when Nicholas is given 20 bucks and told to go see a movie, that's what's happening. That's what's going to happen. And if this is Jesus and this is the Virgin Mary, then this really underscores, right, the sort of disgustingness of these urges. And I think really doubles down on the sort of antichristness of this. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I want to highlight what Mark Aramini has written about this. He he suggests that Diane is connected and, and perhaps is a personification of melancholy and connects her and the bird imagery we get associated with Diane with the quoted Milton poem, Il Penseroso, in this story. And Milton also in this poem is talking about the mythological character Philomel or Philomela. And, um, but with the story of Philomela, uh, Philomela is transformed into a nightingale who cannot sing because her tongue is cut out after she has been raped. And I love what you've done with the connecting of Diana to the Virgin Mary, but we also have this connection to Philomela and the bird who is trapped, who is, cannot tell what has happened to them, uh, which is found in the Il Penseroso, and also the connection to this bird that can't sing and the melancholy or depression that Diane is going through. I want to read a section of this poem just to kind of maybe drive the point home. It goes like this. And the mute silence hissed along, lest Philomel will deign a song in her sweetest, saddest plight, smoothing the rugged brow of night, while Cynthia checks her dragon yoke, gently o'er the accustomed oak. Sweet bird that shunts the noise of folly, most musical, most melancholy. Thee, chauntress, off the woods among, I woo to hear thy even song, and missing thee, I walk unseen on the dry, smooth-shaven green, to behold the wandering moon, riding near her highest noon, like one that had been led astray, through the heaven's wide, pathless way, and oft, as if her head she bowed, stooping through the fleecy cloud. So a lot of the images of the story are caught up in this section of Il Penseroso, including the, the bird that shuns the noise of folly and the inability to hear the song of melancholy and, and 
the walking on the smooth shaven green and the heavens and the wandering moons, which we can connect with Jupiter's moons, which are all being colonized at this point. So I think Wolf has a lot of this in mind. And I think Mark Aramini makes a really astute point making this connection. This is an awesome observation that Mark has made here. Absolutely. And I, I think that we can even take this a, a couple of steps further, or, or really what I mean to say is I think that we can bring in some of the other things that we learn about Diane in this story and think about the Philomel story, which I know at least from, from Ovid's Metamorphoses into this. We have this really disturbing story about Diane's relationship with her parents. And we have two elements in that story that might suggest that she's an object of, if not rape and sexual assault, some kind of at least sexual abuse, or at least is an object of unwanted desire. And uh, we have her mother telling her that girls in this world have to be extremely careful, that she has no idea how careful girls have to be. We get that in the psychodrama, where it's actually about riding bikes, right? But we could definitely hear those words as being about dealing with men, right? Especially when we couple this with the fact that what we know of her father is that he likes to rub her elbows and knees and tell her she should put lotion on them because if she doesn't, no boy is ever going to want to have sex with her. That's really all we get of that, right? But if we are meant to make this parallel with Philomel, who is silenced and is transformed into a bird as the result of a, a sexual assault, I th- and I think that Mark is right here in pairing up that imagery, I think that's very strong, then we might see that that's even in the background here of Diane, and that in some part, that's, that's why she's here. That's how she's gotten here. This is the thing that is uh, has led to her mental health problem, is that she's been uh, abused sexually, perhaps by her, her father and her mother might even seemingly know something about it. But who can she tell? How can she function in the world uh, with that? Who can she go to? Right. This is a problem that, of course, too many people have in the world with this type of of abuse or type of assault. I, I think that might be here in this background of the story. I agree, and and I think the body that Nicholas finds, Diane's body, being ev- eviscerated, is somehow a kind of tragic freeing of that burden that she carries that uh, this death of dr island that's a gift is actually terrible because there's a way for her to receive help rather than being uh, eviscerated by a homicidal maniac and i think that leads to the reading that this place is a type of hell that the way to free her voice the bird rotting in her stomach is to confuse the metaphorical problem with the, the, the literal interpretation and to just eviscerate her and let her die rather than giving her any real help. It's extraordinarily tragic, I think, if, as you begin to put some of these symbols together in this story. And of course, Dr. Island's justification for this is, well, she wanted to die. I just gave her what she wanted. Isn't that what we should do for people? Yeah, absolutely horrifying. I mean, this is... Look, if I had to put money in a fight between Dr. Island and Hell 9000, I'm going to pick Dr. Island to win every time. I think he's worse. I think he's scarier. He's far more corrupt, I think. Let's move on now to the renaming of Nicholas that we get to the end of the story, this last kind of mythological element regarding names. Nicholas, as we brought up many times, is a name that means people's victory, but St. Nicholas is the patron saint of children, sailors, and merchants, and also thieves. Uh, And St. Nicholas was a bishop who 
one of his acts uh, to becoming a saint was saving some girls from prostitution, paying their dowry so they didn't have to become prostitutes. And this is how he becomes the patron saint of children. And this is all embedded in the name of Nicholas. But Kenneth means basically fireborn. I wonder, Glenn, if you see any significance to this renaming of the loss of the name Nicholas uh, and maybe its symbolic meanings and the gaining of the name meaning fireborn. Is this positive? Is this negative? Is it right that Nicholas has been denied being the dominant personality in the symbolic reading of this story? Fireborn certainly sounds a lot more violent and martial than people's victory or or even really just equating that with with being the, the the saint of children or you know santa claus right but it could also refer to someone who has gone through a terrible experience and emerged the other side of it at least okay if not actually stronger and i wonder if here in these names this isn't one of the places where we're meant to to be thinking a little bit about Easter and perhaps about about Christ's experience between Good Friday and Easter, when one of the things that Christ does in this time is descend to hell, descend into the, the fire and emerge from it. This is part of his journey to being the redeemer of us all. Uh, I don't want to suggest that actually maybe this whole time Nicholas slash Kenneth has actually been the Christ figure in this story, but that might be a reading we could hammer together if we wanted to have an optimistic, uh, kind view of this name change. I don't know if I could stand by that, though. Right. I think that is a wonderful reading of the story, and you nearly had me convinced, but because of how much other fire imagery is in the story, how much Nicholas loves to play with fire and his destructive tendencies with it, and inheriting the nuclear welder from Ignacio... I can't help but to think that removing Nicholas from the equation rather than healing him is the right move. That Nicholas, as the dominant personality, could have been somebody to stand against Ignacio as an Antichrist figure. And part of Dr. Island's scheme is to ensure that that never happens. Right, because it does actually seem like Nicholas himself is redeemed in this story through his love of Diane, through wanting to protect her, wanting to uh, protect her in ways that he didn't protect Maya. Kenneth, the personality that has sometimes control of one of the limbs, sexually assaults Diane, right? He, he places his hand on her breast. And in the story, we're told that this is the only way that he has to communicate. But, you know, he could have waved or something, right? I, I, I think the, the sexualization, the sexualness of that gesture without permission, right, I think is, is meant to suggest here that maybe Kenneth is not the good personality who's been in hiding and been suppressed by the bad personality of Nicholas. I think you're reading that uh, Nicholas was accidentally healed and, and devilified here. Uh, and that doesn't work for Dr. Island's purposes. So he wants Kenneth to come out. I think that's a better reading. Well, I think we're at a point now where we can get into some of the psychological experiments of the story and, and some of the questions of language and thought that are brought up. I want to start by reading the summary of Dr. Harlow's experiment studying humans as primates, which is found on page 125 uh, Dr. Island is speaking here. It says this. Dr. Harlow tried, you see, to get the isolate monkeys to breed. Sex is the primary social function, but they wouldn't. 
Whenever another monkey of either sex approached, they displayed aggressiveness, which the other monkeys returned. He cured them finally by introducing immature monkeys, monkey children, in the place of the mature, socialized ones. These needed the isolate adults so badly that they kept on making approaches no matter how often or how violently they were rejected, and in the end, they were accepted, and the isolates socialized. It's interesting to note that the founder of Christianity seems to have had an intuitive grasp of the principle, but it was almost 2,000 years before it was demonstrated scientifically. So here we have the connection again of this experiment, the experiment that Dr. Island is playing out with Ignacio and Nicholas and Diane with the messianic figure of Christ, with Christ's uh, love of children saying, let the children come to me, of recognizing their importance as uh, being symbolically related to the lowliest of the kingdom who would inherit the kingdom, who would be first in the kingdom. And this scientific practice of trying to get monkeys uh, who have been isolated to mate. What do you think is going on here? I don't want to dig too deeply back in theology here, but why is Wolf emphasizing through this story Ignacio's maybe messianic status, but also connecting it to Christianity in this way? Well, this is certainly a very good casual way to reinforce the idea that Ignacio is an antichrist, an anti-messiah. It's interesting, though, that we don't actually know anything about where Ignacio goes and what he does when he's out, right? We don't actually see him going out into the world and being the antichrist, being the anti-messiah, doing anything with this. So I think it's hard for me to really quite understand what Wolf wants us to do with this, like what his message is here. But I know that you have just gotten back from a trip on which you were reading Dune. So perhaps you might be able to uh, to have some messianic thoughts to enlighten this. Yeah, it really struck me as I was thinking about this, that, you know, Dune is a really a messianic story where the Messiah doesn't die. And that's actually catastrophic for most of humanity as the as the story continues and i wonder if that's something that wolf has in the back of his mind uh, as he's thinking about this really incubation tank for a messiah a christ figure a hero figure a revolutionary leader whatever it is that would lead humanity out of some sort of malaise but it's also chosen by humanity and, and engineered by humanity and so it's because I just finished reading Dune that I kind of had this connection, but I think that Wolf is doing something with that sort of imagery that Ignacio is going to live and lead people out of a sort of ennui and continue to live and become maybe a type of tyrant until a new hero needs to be made by these people that run this society, this island. Right. I guess we could see this as a kind of incubation center. It's a, I, I love that you've called it that for a kind of Nietzschean messiah, I suppose, right? In the sense of misreading Nietzsche, of course, right, I guess. But in this, uh, this idea that the thing to do, the religion or the good news that he will spread will be about doing what you want, about giving into your desires, or not giving into them, but fulfilling your desires, because you are a, a master of yourself and a master in the world. And I wonder how we're supposed to couple that with the image that is lurking in the background, like literally the actual background of Dr. Island, of a star being created 
that Dr. Island is orbiting around very slowly, right? The, the birth of a new star, the birth of a new civilization that we are told is cold and harsh and difficult civilization, basically just living in space stations, uh, even when you're on a planet, right? All of the imagery that we have from all of these people whether they're living in a dome or in an actual station, is that they're not living in the actual paradise that the creator God made for us, which is to say Earth. And in fact, even the people of Earth aren't living there anymore, we are told as well, right? So there is there is something going on here in the background, the, the ecological details here about the corruption of creation, and perhaps even the hubris of humanity in ascribing for itself, right, the power of God to make a star, to make a new sun, to try to make a new solar system. And maybe we can pick that up. I think we're going to talk about Robin a little bit later. I want to say one more thing about Harlow before we move on. I've been really interested in these studies that, that Harlow did, and he did these for really about 30 years. Coming into this story, to my mind, the most famous study that, that Harlow did was about parenting, in which he used these monkeys to decide to determine whether or not uh, physical touch and uh, love and, and affection are necessary for young primates, for, for child primates, uh, necessary, uh, but also is it good, right? Does it have a positive outcome? And this was a study that he undertook in response to what was the dominant mode of parenting, or at least what psychologists were telling mothers to do in America in the early part of the 20th century, which was don't smother your children with love. And in fact, the best thing for mothers to do is to withhold affection from their children, because hugging them, touching them, telling them you love them creates too much dependency. And the, the best thing to do is to actually push them away and to withhold your love from them. This can't sound right to anyone who's actually listening to this now. And in part, because we know that that's totally false. Part of how we know that's totally false is because of what Harlow did with monkeys, the ethics of which are are awful. But we learned this uh, through this experiment. In this experiment, Harlow had two fake monkeys and put infant monkeys, toddler monkeys in with them and observed their behavior and, and tracked which fake monkey they would prefer to be with. One of the monkeys was a wire monkey that actually had barbs on it. It would hurt the monkey to get near it. But that's the monkey that actually had the food supply. So the monkeys had to go there in order to get the food. The other monkey was a soft monkey that was warm. And what he found was that overwhelmingly, these young monkeys, these child monkeys would prefer to stay with the monkey that doesn't have any food, but the, but the one that felt like it was hugging them than to go anywhere near the, the one that had food, even to their own uh, physical detriment, right? To, to sort of show that this is something that young primates, including humans, need and want. And this was something that revolutionized all the sort of advice that mothers were getting. That seems to be happening here in this story, right? We look at all of these characters, our, our three characters here, Ignacio, Nicholas, and Diane, they all have in their background, and it might even be fair to say that they are all here because of problems with their parents. Ignacio grows up alone. He has no parents or and other humans around him at all. All he has is robots. This is why he's homicidal, right? This is why he doesn't have love or community, because he grew up with the wire monkey instead of the, the soft monkey. Nicholas has a real hostile relationship with his mother. We don't really get too much about sort of 
where that hostility comes from or why, but he seems to question the, the truth of her love, question whether she actually loves him. And of course, you know, I've talked already about my reading of Diane's relationship with her parents as such that it might even be downright abusive. And that's who we have here in this mental hospital. We are seeing that they have all through this, through neglect uh, and through abuse, have not developed properly. And that's another of Harlow's experiments. And I, I think Wolf had that in mind when he was constructing this. And, and in fact, in some ways, calling attention to this other Harlow story is I, I almost thought was kind of a red herring, though I think you've had a really good reading of it. Yeah, I find it very strange the way that Wolf approaches Harlow and the studies he's looking at here, because he's clearly referencing, I think, the studies that you mentioned. But the one he's talking about and connecting to Christianity have to do with getting monkeys to breed. And that's a big part of socialization. And it's just this very confused sort of notion that Dr. Island seems to be putting forth. But you brought up a few points in there that I kind of want to continue on. Namely, the problem with attachment that all these three people seem to have, whether it's a distorted sense of what's right and wrong and interacting with other people, how Diane just says it's okay when Kenneth touches her breast or her saying it's okay, Nicholas, when she tells Nicholas to leave her alone with Ignacio, with Ignacio's own violent homicidal tendencies, and with Nicholas's rage. All of these people have these real disorders uh, that are present in them. And yet Dr. Island indicates that one of the ways that he wants to help them heal, or one of the ways that the engineers of the island want to help them heal, is by giving them some sort of control over their environment. And this is something that is supposed to soothe people. And he talks about the oldest dreams of magic. And I just want to get your take on whether or not you think giving people magic in general is a good idea and whether or not you think this is actually an effective therapy tool for these three people, whether they should try to control their environments and maybe what Nicholas realizes he can do when he has that power. I was really skeptical of this business when we encountered it in the, in the story. The, idea that what's good for us is for the weather to match our mood. And, and in fact, that's the thing that we all secretly yearn for. I don't believe that at all. And especially when this is coupled in the text with Dr. Island saying, you know, someone who's in a bad mood and you, they go outside on a beautiful summer day, it only makes them double down on their bad mood because now they're mad that the universe is, is trying to trick them into feeling good or, or you know something like that is the implication there i think that's absolutely nonsense and this is something i have grown to really understand as a, a middle-aged bald person uh how much i am actually dependent on the sunlight in fact how much my mood is dependent on the weather i don't want it to be the other way around it would be terrible weather all the time it would just always be winter i need the seasons to change in order to feel uplifted really i'm just trying to make a joke here i guess but really just to say that i don't think that the relationship goes that way. I don't believe in the the fact of what Dr. Island is saying at all. And so, yeah, therefore, I think this is an absolutely awful therapeutic technique. I agree. I think it's extraordinarily narcissistic and it just reinforces that, you know, for people who are trying to be reintroduced to society and to function, that somehow what they need to do is learn how to control more instead of recognizing they're a part of a, a network of various complex motivations and ideas and uh, inputs from other people. And rather to extend that uh, kind of courtesy they give themselves for their moodiness, their motivations, whatever's going on, 
to others instead of desiring more and more control. And for me, this just, again, reinforces that what Dr. Island is creating is a kind of narcissistic monster in some sense. And to get at this question of, of, of equating that with magic and, and this, this idea that that's what humans have always wanted or that that's what they've meant when they've been questing for magic is to have control over their environment. I mean, perhaps that is something that we quest for, yearn for as a, a species. I, I suppose it would actually be quite nice to be able to control hurricanes and other types of disasters and that sort of thing and, and to control our own climate change as well. But giving an individual human this kind of power, it's not only narcissistic, this is going to be bad for a person, right? To completely control your environment in that way, such that you're actually controlling the weather and so on. This is to completely, this is to perfectly isolate yourself from other people in a way that is impossible otherwise. And that's the opposite of what humans need, especially humans in poor mental health. And in fact, I think we all understand that a lot of poor mental health, it comes as a result of, of, of being isolated or feeling isolated. Uh, giving us more power to do that doesn't seem like a particularly good idea. I'm, I'm bordering now on uh, going on a rant about screens, I guess, but I'm, I'm not meaning to, but I'm, I'm actually <laughs> seeing now the parallel and maybe this is something Wolf had in mind. Yeah, I think so. And I, I don't know how much more deeper we need to go into that question. But I don't disagree that that, that is one of the oldest quests of humanity is to uh, control the gods through sacrifices and rituals and, and those sort of acts that look like a magic. You're kind of paid the lip service to the god that says, yeah, you can do whatever you want. But like, I just sacrificed 30 people. So like my crops better grow. That that's a form of magic. We've moved pretty far away from that in our in our civilization <laughs> and society, and I think that's for the best. The next thing I want to look at here is the way that Wolf is dealing with networks of symbols and language that are part of a person's ability to function well or participate within society. And here I'm specifically thinking about uh, Wolf's examination of color via Dr. Island or environmental psychology or the value of language and processing emotions, but also maybe referring to something that's like a, a like an innate experience. In, in this case, I'm thinking of why we'd use the word flamingo for a flamingo rather than a sparrow, because a flamingo is a more beautiful word. And it's that innate beauty of something that we're trying to get at. I'm not saying I agree with that reading of it, but that seems to be what's going on in this story or what Dr. Island is trying to talk about. And I wonder if Wolf isn't responding to the linguist uh, Dr. Benjamin Lee Worf here, who argued for the case that language informs our experience of the world. And a brilliant example of what has become to be known as the Worf-Sapir hypothesis in science fiction can be found in a recently published story, The Story of Your Life by Ted Chang, uh, which was adapted into the film Arrival, which is the way about language can change our perception of reality. But I'm more of a mind here that symbols are more fluid in general than than fixed. And I think Wolf seems to believe this as well. We get in later novels like Book of the New Sun, uh, examinations of how symbols make us rather than the other way around, um, but how they can be fluid as well. You know, for instance, couldn't it be just as likely that if we were to start using the word sparrow for 
flamingo that we find the word sparrow more beautiful, that symbols are never as fixed as we think they are. But anyway, Glenn, I'm wondering if I could just pick your brain about how symbols function in this story and whether or not you agree with Dr. Island or what you think Wolf is doing in this case. I think Dr. Island is totally wrong here. I think you're absolutely right. We think of sparrow as a kind of dull pedestrian word because it describes a dull pedestrian bird, right? Uh, Flamingo, I suppose it sounds cool and exotic. I don't think it sounds any cooler or exotic than sparrow does. It's just that the bird itself, the object uh, attached to it is, right? I mean, you know, Shakespeare's already dealt with this, right? A rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Uh, a kind of divorce between the object and the, and the name that we give it. What Wolf is doing with this line here, with this conversation here in the story, is maybe another matter. But if we are supposed to see that Dr. Island uh, is evil, or if we're supposed to read him as evil, and this is a kind of hellishness, then I think we're supposed to understand that this is a, a not a good way to go about understanding the universe either. On the other hand, there is actually some good advice in this conversation, which is that articulating your emotional state, articulating who you are, using words to communicate is a healthy thing for people to do. It is part of our therapy. It is part of our healing process. That's got to be a definitively true statement. So I'm not quite sure, just isolating, just taking this story on its own, I'm not quite sure I could tell where Wolf is coming down on this. Yeah, I'm not sure either, but I just love the way Wolf engages with networks of symbols and and how they function. And I think this story is kind of a a primer on that before we get to more advanced wolf thinking on symbols and language. I want to finally return to the experiment that's taking place on this island. I think we've answered this question, but I'm going to put it to you again. Is the project of giving Ignacio free reign to explore his dark desires something that you really think would benefit humanity? How how do you think a society would go about deciding who could be given permission to enact their dark thoughts and withholding permission from those who we don't want to do that? And this story seems to indicate that a big part of the permissivity of it from society is based on IQ. So is any of this a good idea? What kind of person can this possibly create? And is there any rational explanation for how these decisions could be made by a society. First, this is a terrible idea. We should not do this. We should not take Dr. Island as some kind of inspiration and create some kind of clinic that's going to let 25-year-olds murder other college students as a part of their therapy. Let's not do that. That's a bad idea. There is a real question here, though, about why this is even happening, right? Who are these people who have built Dr. Island, who decides who goes there and who is the priority? I think it's clear to say, right, humans have constructed this. And there are conflicting indications about how Dr. Island functions within society, right? Who goes there? Dr. Island himself says what you say, which is uh, that IQ has something to do with it. He is at least very concerned about people's IQs. Ignacio's is at the, the, the genius level, which we might take to be an indicator of high potential. In the 70s, certainly people did. In the 80s, when I was growing up, people did as well. I don't think we do that anymore, at least not as a sole factor. But Diane and and Nicholas, to a lesser extent, they seem to understand that Ignacio is the priority here, not because of his intellectual capacity or his and, and potential on those lines, but because this is a treatment facility that costs money. 
and that Ignacio is wealthy. And we seem to see this backed up by the fact that he's living on an estate with types of robots that only wealthy people can afford. And I certainly, at least at some points while reading the story, have the sense that what we're getting here is that these sort of middle class kids, maybe even poor kids, are literally being sacrificed to get this wealthy young man to to come out of his shell, to be able to go inherit his family's estate and manage their wealth and their uh, their business back on earth. Uh, that was certainly a sense that I had. I don't know if that squares with everything that we get in the story. I think one thing we also have to take into account is Nicholas's IQ is misreported, and that could be perhaps why he's still on the island rather than being killed or... Uh, destroying himself or destroying his part of the island is they actually want to evaluate his intelligence in order to determine what type of candidate he is for the real nature of the experiments that they're running here. I don't know if it's purely socioeconomic status and IQ and many other factors uh, combined in there, but it's clear that if Diane turned out to be the lowest IQ person on the island, she is sacrificed and somehow that's justified by this experiment. And that that's an idea that's caught up in eugenics and the most horrific crimes of the 20th century. So Dr. Island is really, really an evil figure here. Yes. And I think you've really hit it on the head here then in saying eugenics, Dr. Island tells us that his mission here is to rehabilitate people who are going to be useful for this society, this, this, uh, post-Martian society, meaning the the solar system beyond Mars, where life is difficult. It is physically challenging, uh, challenging in terms of surviving against the laws of physics in a harsh environment. It is also psychologically difficult, uh, living in cans, living in environments that humans weren't created for. And we know that this is only a century from when Wolf wrote this story. So actually, really, this could happen in our own lifetime. Wolf is envisioning this world. So this world in its nascent form, in its infancy, it's building this sun. It is building this civilization around the new sun that they are creating. And they are going to need smart people who can overcome challenges, who can meet challenges and overcome obstacles in order to build this. And maybe it doesn't matter if sometimes they like to blowtorch a a naked girl. That's the price we pay for civilization. Yeah, it's certainly a dark picture of civilization. And and I think, you know, I really want to ask now what kind of society it is, maybe just to put a point on it here, though I think we've done a pretty good job talking about it, that is being created, that also has created a place that is manufacturing heroic or messianic figures. To me, this is a crazy idea. I want to point out a few of the world-building elements we get in this story in order to maybe just definitively understand what type of place Wolf has created here. I mean that in a more cosmic sense. We get a spacefaring civilization where humanity is suffocating. Robots have taken over the jobs of even doctors or mental health professionals. There seems to be a lot of mental health facilities, actually. Socioeconomic status is still a really big deal. Somebody has found a way to turn Jupiter into a sun. You know, We don't know what kind of life exists on the satellites of Jupiter, but they're trying to rebuild humanity there. Earth has really lost its edge, so to speak. And they've built this artificial island that has its own bizarre physical properties. So 
putting that all together, Glenn, I mean, what has failed in all of this technological advancement that the elite people of society, the people at the high end of the socioeconomic status, need to manufacture heroes? What has gone wrong in your mind? In thinking about this, I want to pick up the thread of eugenics that you you brought up already. And and just to, to think about this story in the context of the middle of the, the 20th century. Think about this in the context of Wolf's world, the world of his of his childhood, his adolescence, and his early adulthood. And this was a world in which building the new society, building a perfect society, was something that people had tried to do in horrific ways through eugenics, which was you know, in part actual eugenics and breeding programs, but also exterminating people you don't want, exterminating undesirables. The world facing that, facing the the horrors of the the Nazi regime, is one of the the first things that Wolf experiences as a child. Right, he grows up in a world that seems to be about that question, and it's a question that has driven people to violence. This is has to shape your your worldview. And certainly shape the way you are thinking about the future. And if we are thinking about the question of eugenics and creating the the perfect society, this is also wrapped up in the issue of totalitarianism, of autocracy. And many of these autocracies, in fact, we might say almost all of them, at least in this part of the 20th century, the the, the 40s, I, I mean here, is wrapped up in the idea of the, the cult of personality that all of these uh, these figures Stalin and, and Hitler, uh, as well as many others, are are regarded as these kind of quasi religious figures around whom there is a kind of cult of personality. And if we're thinking, what do we do in space to create a highly efficient, well ordered society of super people who can make a new star, who can create world suitable for humans out here? Well. We need a eugenics program, and we also need a cult of personality. We need we need inspirational leaders who also aren't encumbered by morals and then can therefore make the tough choices. They can know when it's actually a good idea to exterminate 10 million people for the, the betterment of the rest of us. This is the dark vision, right? And I think as we've gone through talking about this story, it's becoming clearer and clearer that this is actually kind of a satire, right? That this is sort of envisioning the worst of us going out and and colonizing the solar system, whereas most science fiction imagines the best of us going out and doing this, or imagines that going out and doing this brings out the best in us. I think Wolf is actually taking the opposite stance here, or at least asking us to consider that. I couldn't agree more, especially given the fact that he's already saying in this story that people have polluted and destroyed Earth, and now they want to go out and say the hope is somewhere in the stars, turning a planet into a star, who knows what kind of terrible, you know, uh, terrible chain reactions that might have. But the answer isn't actually somewhere in space. It's just returning to a sensible stewardship of the planet on some sense. And I think that that kind of commentary is embedded in the story. And there is an element of satire there uh, that Wolf is saying, humanity is always going to take itself with them. Why do we think that what we've done here, we wouldn't do somewhere else? I want to briefly mention this quote that uh, Mark Garamini includes in his really brilliant examination of this story in Between Light and Shadow. This is what Wolf said about this story. I would do a thematic inversion of my earlier story. 
I had had a very nice sort of little boy. I would have a very nasty sort, thus tacky Nicholas. I had had a doctor who looked like a villain. I would have one who was one, but looked real good, thus Dr. Death, Dr. Island. I had a real, somewhat gritty island on the Atlantic coast. I would have an artificial island on an artificial world, thus Settler's Island, Dr. Island, and so on and so forth. So given that quote, and just to kind of tie our conversation together here, is anything that has happened here in the death of Dr. Island good at all for anyone? Has your reading changed? Do you think this is still a hopeful story? And maybe just what do you think are the types of questions that Wolf wants to evoke in his readers? Yeah, my reading certainly has changed as we've had this conversation. I wanted to find some way for this to be a story about redemption and to have an optimistic outcome, or at least to be pointing towards the possibility for it. I just don't think that can stand up in the face of all of this. I wanted to, but you have proved me wrong, I think. And part of my yearning for that reading is that if if it wasn't a hopeful story, then I wasn't really sure what to do with it. But if we take this as a kind of satire and maybe even take this then as a cautionary tale, then I think therein lies the rub, right? And we can see this as a, as a cautionary tale for the, the now of the writing of the story in the early 1970s. It's still a cautionary tale for us now as well in the early 21st century. This story is dealing with questions, with matters that are fundamentally important to who we are as individuals and who we are as a civilization, from things like parenting, uh, showing love and affection to, to children, taking care of children, protecting children, raising them to be good people. What happens when you don't do that? What happens when you only value people for their IQ and not for their morality, for their behavior, for other qualities, for qualities like compassion and and goodness, creativity as well. What happens when we allow our planet to be destroyed or continue to allow our planet to be destroyed, our environment? What does that do to us as people? What does it do to us as, as, as communities, as a civilization, as a species? And if we're looking here as well at the th- things that Wolf raises about wealth uh, and uh, wealth inequality, wealth disparity, as being a kind of ill in society here, then you know what we have, I think, in aggregate is, if that's who we are as a civilization, when we try to move out into the solar system and further out into the stars, we're just going to take that ugliness with us, no matter where we go. This is kind of an, an anti-Star Trek reading here, in which Star Trek wants to imagine that coming together to to go out into the stars is going to make us better. Wolf is saying we have to be better first, is my sense of it. I couldn't agree more, especially given that Dr. Island is this sort of counterfeit god that is meant to be a stand-in for society, an abstraction of society's yearnings and dreams and desires. And, you know, we tend to always abstract the real positive out of our society and civilization and what we're doing in the world, looking for the positive. But I think Wolf is looking at the world and saying, like, if we were to just take this and feed it to a machine and say, make an abstraction and play the role of society for people who need help, people would not be helped at all. And it would create devils instead of saints. And I think that that is another big element of this story as well. I think that's an absolutely astute reading of this story. I'm leaving this conversation perhaps feeling worse than I, when I came into it, but I think understanding the story better and actually taking Wolf's 
vision here or taking Wolf's ideas here very seriously, right? That we can't just have science fiction as a kind of optimism, that we need to treat science fiction as inspiration for us to actually be better now, to actually take a look at ourselves and figure out who we want to be and how we can be that both as individuals and collectively as as a sort of global civilization as well. I want to call attention to three elements that we have in this story that might also be looking ahead to the future. We have a potentially messianic figure in this story who is uh, extremely violent for reasons that may not be completely up to his will. And we also have a new sun being created. So you, gentle listener, can can make of that what you will. But I think that we see here already Wolf thinking about some of the things that are going to go into his magnum opus uh, a few years later. Right. And Ignacio is from Brazil, which is really the setting of the Book of the New Sun in, in many people's readings. Well, on that note, I think that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDormand. You can find us and our other creative projects, as always, at claytemplemedia.com. We covered a lot in this episode, and we'd love to talk about it with you over on the Clay Temple forums. Please join us over there and let us know what you thought of our discussion of the death of Dr. Island. Next time, we will be back with the first episode on yet another novella. This one is for lesson. We'll take a few episodes to get through it. Until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>